0: This evening's Bible reading comes from Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. It's on the handouts you got on the way in or in the pew Bibles. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks. Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I do not know, he replied. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden.
1: Well, good evening, folks. Uh, let me <clears throat> add my welcome to James's. It's really good to be with you. Um, my name's Andrew. If you're new or visiting, it's just really great that you're here. You're picking up towards the end of a sermon series uh, on the first chapters of the book of Genesis. Um, so that's where we are, but it's not it's not a bad bad place to jump in in a lot of ways. Um, as we turn to, to we, we begin with chapter four. Um, I'm going to pray again as we think about this. Kind of really challenging story in a lot of ways. Let's pray. Lord, keep us as the apple of your eye, hide us in the shadow of your wings, and give us the grace of honesty with ourselves and before you that we may know Jesus. Amen. Um, so, if you want the text, by the way, it's printed in your outlines, and uh, there's also a sermon outline there. Which I think is actually rather a nice outline. So just put that out there at the beginning. Uh, So, as I said, over the past weeks, we've been looking at the stories the Bible tells about the beginning of the world and the beginning of human life. The tragedy is that the story so quickly becomes a tragedy, a story of failure and fall. For the last two weeks, We've been looking at the story of how this failure first came about and how Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. And it's tempting, actually, to finish there, at the end of chapter 3, feeling maybe that we've kind of seen enough. But the way the book of Genesis tells it, we shouldn't look away just yet. The story of Adam and Eve continues straight on, telling us of the fates of their children. And if we are to really understand what has taken place, we just need to follow the thread a bit further. Well, this week, the story before us, which we've just heard, is a story of two brothers, Cain and Abel, and the first murder. It is a subtle and unsettling story that remains a bit mysterious in some ways, but that also shines a painful light onto the reality of our struggle with evil. We're going to begin uh, tonight just by walking through the story and just trying to take it in. But the substance and the themes of this story also have really fascinating echoes later on in the Bible. And so after we've taken some time over the story of Cain and Abel, we will let it lead us to two other stories of two brothers as we reflect on what we see here and as we think about our own response. So that's where we're going. Okay, let's begin then with the first two brothers, Cain and Abel. You know, the story begins surprisingly, hopefully. Adam made love to his wife Eve. The Hebrew is literally Adam knew his wife But the more recent English translators obviously thought that was a bit too complicated for us to get, uh, even though, you know, she became pregnant, kind of gives away, what we're talking about. But uh, anyway, and made love to is actually a euphemism as well, but there you go. And she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, it tells us, by the way, I'm not going to put all the words on the screen, so follow along on your sheets as well, some of them will come up. But she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. It's a hopeful beginning, as I said. Life goes on, and it goes on, it seems, with God, in some sense. Eve says, with the help of the Lord. Though Adam and Eve have been driven from the garden, God is still with them. And yet, as we will see, God's relationship with them is not the same. The way the two brothers are introduced is really worth noticing. In the Hebrew, the name Cain sounds like the verb translated uh, brought forth. When it says brought forth, uh, one is Cain and the other is Cani. I mean, not that you need to know, but they they sound really similar. Um, So Cain is the firstborn, right? And his name has a sense of... It's it's weighty. It has a sense of accomplishment, achievement. I've brought forth Abel. By contrast, did you know? He's hardly noticed. It just says, Later she gave birth to Abel. Also ran Abel. His name, although it's not mentioned, it sounds exactly like the Hebrew word for breath or vapor. If you breathe out or steam from a kettle that just disappears, that's Hevel in Hebrew. Abel. Cain has presence, weight, significance. Abel is Mr. Nothing. Now, Abel kept flocks, we're told in verse 2. And Cain worked the soil. Cain follows his father's path of being a man of the ground. Abel branches out to sheep, husbandry. And then in verse 3, it says, In the course of time, Cain brought some Of Some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The way it reads, it seems like Cain takes the initiative and Abel follows. Thinks, oh, that's a good idea, I'll I'll do that too. Um, It is interesting that they think to do this at all. They are still very much seeking, it seems, a relationship with the Lord. God still matters to them. But God does not react equally to their offerings, as we see in verse 4. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. In the end, it's hard to say why this is. I think there is a clue, actually, in the way the offerings are described. Cain's, it says, was simply some of the fruits of the soil. There's nothing wrong with grain and the fruits of the soil. In the Hebrew sacrificial system, grain offerings are normal and good, so there's nothing wrong with that, but just some of the fruits of the soil. Whereas Abel brought the choicest parts of his flock. It does seem that there was a real difference in the way in which the two brothers approached God, but it's not glaringly obvious. It's not so obvious that anybody could have seen it. And actually, Cain... Is furious. Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Verse 5. Now I want to pause on that reaction. Um, Indeed, the next verse, verse 6, invites us to pause because God repeats the reaction. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Why was Cain angry? I think it must have been a complex knot of emotions, this frustration that this this was his idea. And Abel was a latecomer, and yet Abel was accepted, and he wasn't. There must have been also embarrassment and humiliation. His little brother, his little nothing brother, succeeding, and him failing Shame, actually, is the name for that. Shame. Having his failure exposed painfully by the comparison with another's success. I think that's what we see when it says that his face was downcast, or or another translation puts it, his face fell. Actually, this is familiar stuff. I wonder if there's anybody here who doesn't know some of these feelings of envy and anger and shame and frustration since childhood. I do think envy is another important name for what happens with Cain. His anger acquires a focus. He begins to hate his brother for Abel's success. Let's think about envy for a moment. Aristotle said... Envy is pain at the good fortune of others. Immanuel Kant, a bit of tour of you know Western philosophy here. Immanuel Kant described envy as a sullen passion. Great phrase that tortures oneself and aims, at least in terms of one's wishes, at destroying others' good fortune. And Adam Smith says envy is that passion which. Views with malignant dislike. The superiority of those who are really entitled to all the superiority they possess. These feelings, anger, shame, envy, they put Cain in mortal peril. This is what the Lord shows him in verses 6 and 7. It's on your outline, I'll also put it on the screen. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry why is your face downcast if you do what is right will you not be accepted but if you do not do if you do not do what is right sin is crouching at your door it desires to have you but you must rule over it cain is in deadly peril yet he is not yet lost he has a choice there lie before him Two paths. That in itself is amazing. He can still be accepted. What would that have looked like, do you think, for him to be accepted? For him to do well in this situation? Perhaps it would have looked like him learning to rejoice in Abel's success and be instructed by it. Perhaps it would have looked like him refusing to let his anger fester and seeing this as a moment, an opportunity for growth maybe he needed to hear and focus on God's promise that he really could be accepted maybe that's what it would have looked like for him to rule over the sin that is crouching at his door, indeed I wonder if God knew that this is what Cain needed to grow But instead, the sin that desires to have Cain does have him. His seething anger and humiliation ferment into envy, and it carries him to murder. It's premeditated. He invites Abel out to the field where no one will see, and there he attacks him and kills him. In one generation, humanity has fallen from paradise to fratricide, the murder of the brother. The first human born is a murderer. No doubt the point of being out in the field was to conceal the crime, but it cannot be concealed. It can't be. Immediately, Cain is confronted. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cable, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain's reply is ugly, not only for the brazen way he lies for God, but for the way he kind of implies God's question is stupid. I realized after this morning, Cain is basically gaslighting God here. I mean, that's that's ballsy, but, you know. But he does, he's kind of saying... As if I should be looking after my brother like a gardener looks after a garden, or like a shepherd looks after a, a shepherd keeps a flock. Is that what I'm supposed to be doing? It's a dismissive, petulant response. But the thing is, God already knows the truth. And now, for the second time in Genesis, the Lord asks a man, What have you done? Verse 10, did you see it there? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Okay, you may not be your brother's keeper, but you are his neighbor. You are his brother. So what he has done is horrendous. And so now God says, you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. In chapter 3, we saw last week, only the ground and the snake were cursed, but now Cain too is under the curse. When you work the ground, God says, this is, uh, this is verse 12, when you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain's relationship to the earth is now even more broken than Adam's. He has abused the earth by pouring out his brother's blood upon it. And so now he will be estranged from it, alienated from it in new ways, no longer able to make a home, dislocated. And this means being estranged even more from God as well. Cain responds horrified. Have a look at his response. He says, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Do you see how the three relationships we looked at last week? Last week we saw that three relationships were broken in the first sin. The relationship between humans and the earth, the relationship between humans and one another, and the relationship between humans and God. And now all three of these relationships is even more broken. Genesis has taught us that to be human is to exist within an interconnected field of relationships with the earth, with other humans, and with the Lord. That's a good kind of summary, I think, of what we see about humanity in Genesis. And now Cain's crime has set him further from all three. Other humans are going to seek to kill him. The land will not support him. It will reject him. And he will be hidden from God's presence. He will be a wandering free radical, lost and vulnerable in the world. Inevitably, he will be killed. Except that God intervenes to protect him. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, Not so, anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod. Which, at nod, is, it just means wandering east of Eden. Human life is going to go on, sustained now by a guarantee of retribution. It's hard to know what this mark that God gives Cain is. But the way it works seems to be that it signals punishment, retaliation. No longer can human society be held together by respect and admiration and care, now it has to be held together by a threat of violence. It would be great, wouldn't it? It would be great if we could confidently say that this story has nothing to teach us or to show us. And I doubt that anyone here is a murderer. Although if you are, you know, stop. But uh, I think you're probably not. But I also doubt anyone here knows, knows nothing at all of the sad, stewing anger we see in Cain. Of the viciousness that can burst out of being humiliated. Or the malice that grows out of envy. And I doubt that anyone here can say they are not at all frightened by that image of sin crouching at the door. Or that they've, they've never failed to rule over it as they should. We also need to recognize that the world that Cain made is our world. It is a world of alienation from the earth, of unsettledness and fear, a world where violence can erupt unexpectedly and is held in check often only by fear of retaliation. And most of all, it is a world where we are in all sorts of deep ways hidden from God's presence it's very interesting, Genesis says, the problem is not that God is hidden, it's that we're hidden. This is no country for old men, as the Cohen brothers put it. As I read this story, I also can't overlook the resonances it has with the history of this country. In which many murders were committed out in the field, far from view of most people so that the horrifying truth of them has often had to be pieced together after the fact, and sometimes only recently. On the frontiers of Australian settlement, right through to my grandparents' lifetime, the ground opened its mouth to receive the blood of indigenous people murdered and massacred. This story makes me expect that that legacy will still haunt us, The story of Cain is not meant to show us how things are all the time, right? Mostly, people are better than this. I mean, we all know that. But it is meant to show us the way things have been and are sometimes. And it shows us some of the wreckage that we have to wrestle with. It shows us paths that have opened up within our world that should have remained closed forever. And that we now have to reckon with it shows us that we are if we're honest lost in a far country away from the lord's presence in the land of wandering east of eden jesus also told a story once about two brothers an older brother and a younger brother You can read the story, and I hope you will, in Luke chapter 15, Luke's gospel chapter 15. Now, on the surface, these two stories seem really different. In Jesus' story, it's the younger son who is the wayward one. He takes his father's property, he says good riddance, and he leaves to go and live a life of pleasure and excess. And the older son in Jesus' story is the obedient, responsible, righteous one, always doing what his father asks Yet beneath this surface, these two stories of two brothers have a lot in common. Because at the heart of both of them is envy. The older son in Jesus' story shows the same envy and anger we see in Cain. Envy and anger in the end at the father's love for the younger son that seems so gratuitous and unequal. Listen to how Jesus describes the older son hearing the news that his brother has been restored. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry. And refused to go in. Do you hear the echoes of the story of Cain and Abel, the older brother, out in the field? The sense of outrage at the younger brother's success. How like Cain that last phrase is, he became angry and his face fell. Now Jesus told this story for a reason. He told it, Luke tells us, in chapter 15, first couple of verses. He told it after the religious leaders of his day expressed indignation that he was welcoming sinners and tax collectors. Jesus did that. He welcomed people who were known as sinners and tax collectors. And the religious leaders got angry, and Jesus told this parable in response. And the story is meant to explain why he is extending welcome to those who have gone astray. But it's also meant to call out those who were protesting, who were objecting, by showing them that their reaction is ugly. It's not actually very far from Cain. But this resonance with the story of Cain and Abel leads us to deeper things even than this. Because the ministry of Jesus was not just about welcoming the wayward back, it was also about going to get them. In the same set of teachings in Luke's gospel, Jesus likened himself to a shepherd who would go after one lost sheep in a hundred until he found it. Elsewhere he called himself the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep after welcoming one tax collector back into fellowship, Jesus declared that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Do you hear the echoes again of the story of Cain and Abel? Am I my brother's keeper? asked Cain. I am, said Jesus. I am. Jesus was the shepherd of of his brothers, the older brother who rather than being consumed by envy and anger at the utterly undeserved affection God continued to have for his wayward people, rather than being consumed by that, Jesus gave himself fully to their restoration. He was the older brother who rather than scorning his younger brother lost in a far country, he went into the far country to get him. And you know, sin crouched at Jesus' door too. But he ruled over it. He ruled over it and filled his heart with compassion rather than envy. And in the end, he allowed himself to be murdered for the sake of winning his brother's back. The story of Cain and Abel shines a light again on the majesty of Jesus and how he carved open a new way by his own faith and love, and at the cost of his own life. Well, where does that leave us today? Well, to finish, I want to take us to one last story of two brothers, but not this time brothers by blood, but brothers through faith in Jesus, two disciples, Peter and John, the story is told in the last chapter of John's Gospel, John chapter 21, where we see Jesus restore Peter after Jesus has been raised from the dead. Uh, you may remember that Peter failed Jesus terribly when he was arrested. He denied three times that he even knew him. But at the end of John's Gospel, Jesus restores people wonderf- uh, Peter, Peter. He restores Peter wonderfully by asking him three times if he loves him. And after Peter answers each time, Lord, you know that I love you, Jesus says, feed my sheep. After the last time he says this, though, Jesus goes on in these words. Have a look at them. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And John tells us then that Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Jesus tells Peter that he is calling him to a service, a discipleship, that will end in his death. He must feed the sheep and then follow him to death. And what is amazing is what comes next. Here is how the very next verse goes on. Peter turned and saw the disciple, that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, What about him? Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Can we just take a moment to let the contrast sink in? Jesus has just told Peter that his path of service will lead to a terrible death, a humiliating death. Now immediately, he confronts Peter with the possibility that this other disciple, whom we are reminded that Jesus had a special affection for, an affection that all the other disciples were well aware of, Jesus says this other disciple, he might just remain alive. You will die. Maybe he will live, Jesus says. And then he asks Peter, and what is that to you? You must follow me. Can you feel the mortal danger that Peter is in at this moment? The sins of Cain, of anger and envy, they are crouching at his door and they desire him. They want to have him, they want to consume him, to fill his heart with bitterness and rage and despair. But they don't. They don't. They don't win. Peter was able somehow to let go of envy and anger and just accept this difference in calling. And he took up his task and fulfilled it. And in the end was taken to death. How? How did that happen? How was the path of Cain not taken once again here by this most ordinary of men who we know had failed many times? How did it happen? The answer must be, it can only be that Peter saw very clearly who it was who had called him to follow. He saw Jesus and he loved him more. He knew that Jesus had loved him, had shown him unimaginable grace. And so Jesus was enough for him, even in the face of the temptation to envy his brother. The Christian life is not lived equally. Jesus calls us each to follow him in a different way, One person is given health and success and a happy marriage and clever, pleasant children and a long life full of ease. Another follows Jesus wrestling with tragedy or injury or autism. Another would love to marry, but cannot. Another is beset by unwanted desires. Another loses a child or a partner, or a parent, or a friend. One person's experience of church is full of kindness and grace. Another finds themselves in the midst of pain and horror. One person's career is brilliant and powerful, another's is full of weakness and failure. And sin crouches at the door. For each one of us, As we look in envy at our brothers and sisters, it desires us. And the Lord speaks to each of us as he speaks to Cain, you must master it. And by God's grace, we can. Not perfectly, not without hiccups and stumbles, and only in the strength of God's spirit but we can because Jesus has already mastered it and he gave himself for our forgiveness and he is the one who calls us, come, follow me. And when he says to us, if I wish it to be like this for this or that person, what is that to you? What is that to you? we can trust him and we don't need to envy because we know that he loves us. And with that love, we have everything. I want to urge us all, friends, in the midst of our world that is scarred by the sins of Cain, I want to urge us to look to Jesus and find a path of hope because His sprinkled blood, as the book of Hebrews puts it, his sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Amen. I'm going to pray. Oh Lord, oh Lord Jesus, we are horrified by the violence of this world. And the envy and anger that can can consume the human heart. And by the inklings of these things we know in our own hearts. But we are overwhelmed even more by the majesty of your goodness. And your heart which was filled not with envy and anger but with compassion and love. And we praise you for coming to seek and save the lost, people like us. And we ask you that you teach us to trust you and to walk after you and to find the good path that you call us to, that is different for each one of us and yet all leading to glory. Amen.